0: Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. I will be reading First Chronicles chapter 21 from the World English Bible. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to take a census of Israel. David said to Joab and to the princes of the people, Go, count Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring me word that I may know how many there are. Joab said, May Yahweh make his people a hundred times as many as they are, but my lord the king, aren't they all my lord's servants? Why does my lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel, then came to Jerusalem. Joab gave up the sum of the census of the people to David. All those of Israel were one million one hundred thousand men who drew a sword, and in Judah, were four hundred seventy thousand men who drew a sword, but he didn't count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing, but now put away, I beg you, the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Yahweh spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David, saying, Yahweh says, I offer you three things. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Yahweh says, Take your choice, either three years of famine or three months to be consumed before your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days the sword of Yahweh, even pestilence in the land, and Yahweh's angel destroying throughout all the borders of Israel. Now therefore consider what answer I shall return to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in distress. Let me fall, I pray, into Yahweh's hand, for his mercies are very great. Don't let me fall into man's hand. So Yahweh sent a pestilence on Israel, and seventy thousand men of Israel fell. God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. As he was about to destroy, Yahweh saw, and he relented of the disaster, and said to the destroying angel, It is enough. Now withdraw your hand. Yahweh's angel was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David lifted up his eyes and saw Yahweh's angel standing between earth and the sky, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. David said to God, Isn't it I who commanded the people to be counted? It is even I who have sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Yahweh my God, be against me and against my father's house, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. Then Yahweh's angel commanded Gad to tell David that David should go up and raise an altar to Yahweh on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David went up at the saying of Gad, which he spoke in Yahweh's name. Ornan turned back and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out of the threshing floor and bowed himself to David with his face to the ground. Then David said to Ornan, Give me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar to Yahweh on it. You shall sell it to me for the full price, that the plague may be stopped from afflicting the people. Ornan said to David, Take it for yourself, and let my lord the king do that which is good in his eyes. Behold, I give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing instruments for wood, and the wheat for the meal offering. I give it all. King David said to Ornan, No, but I will most certainly buy it for the full price, for I will not take that which is yours for Yahweh, nor offer a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David gave to Ornan six hundred shekels of gold by weight for the place. David built an altar to Yahweh there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on Yahweh. And he answered him from the sky by fire on the altar of burnt offering. Then Yahweh commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time when David saw that Yahweh had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there. For Yahweh's tabernacle, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David couldn't go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of Yahweh's angel. That is the end of chapter 21. For me, this is one of those chapters that when I haven't read it for a while, it just stands out as very strange. So I started out with thinking, well, what does God want to teach us here? What is maybe the symbolism or the prophecy or the perspective that can be gained by looking at it in the perspective of the whole Bible? Because he obviously put it here on purpose. In summary, I found that it teaches us very starkly about atonement, and it is also very crucial in the history of Israel as a kingdom and where the temple is built. And now I'll start with verse 1 and talk about some of the things that I noticed and learned while reading and studying this. First of all, verse 1 is a corollary to 2 Samuel 24. In 1 Chronicles 21 here, it says that Satan was allowed to test David. But in 2 Samuel 24, it says that God moved David to do these things. Putting it all together with other things we know, for instance, that God tempts no one in James, it says that, we can deduce that Satan was allowed to test David, and that a test does not mean that God is tempting him, and a test does not always have to equal evil. Take, for instance, what happened with Job. He did not sin, and Abraham, he listened to God and did not sin. So you could say that David failed this test that Satan was allowed to test him with, just like Satan was particularly allowed to test Job, and then later we hear that he's allowed to sift Peter. Now, in this particular instance, he appealed to David's pride as king. Cross-references refer us to Exodus 30, verse 12, where it talks about if you take a census, there has to be the appropriate ransom for each individual so that there will not be a plague. And as David Gusick puts it, this verifies or acknowledges God's ownership of the people here. And to verify that this is a known problem, a known trespass, we have Joab speak up and try to dissuade David from proceeding with it. You've probably noticed that in Chronicles, we've skipped right over the sin of Bathsheba. And in thinking about it for a moment, it's because that was a personal thing, even though it affected the kingdom. But this sin in particular has to do with the future site for the temple. And then for more detail, again, referring back to 2 Samuel 24, we're told that Israel as a nation, the people as a whole, were also sinning, and God was justified in his anger because of this. But again, to point out that a census in and of itself is not wrong, you can read in Numbers 26 about the census that the Lord required. Now, for a reminder, when they use the term Dan to Beer-sheba, this refor- refers to the whole land. It takes in from the north to the south. There are other censuses or counting of people that we could compare this to. First of all we know the census of the tribe of Benjamin first chronicles 7 is not related to this census because this census did not include the tribe of Benjamin it says later then in first chronicles 12 it talks about the number of men from different tribes that came to David as men of war to be his army that's different than numbering all the able bodied men of Israel there's not going to be anything wrong. It's going to be quite natural to organize your army so you would know the numbers for that. When compared with other events that have been spoken of in the timeline in Chronicles now, this does seem to be past what happened with Bathsheba, so possibly David is about 58 years old at this point. Again, in 2 Samuel 24, 8, it says that this census took nine months and 20 days for as far as Joab got with it. And then in 1 Chronicles 27, verses 23 and 24, it will be referred to again, highlighting that it wasn't finished. And so the actual count at that point was unknown, which doesn't take into account even the fact of the number of men that were killed by the pestilence by the angel of the Lord. So in verse 7 is where it starts to get particularly interesting. God responds to what is evil by giving David a choice of punishment or consequences, however you want to put it. David truly repents, but like with the sin with Bathsheba, David is the head over God's people. He is particularly strongly associated with the name of God, and he is very early in the reign of kings. And in essence, he is the first true king that God chose in his timing. Saul was a precursor when the people were pestering for a king. And this also reminds us that repentance by itself is insufficient to deal with sin. There still has to be atonement, and consequences do not equal atonement, and suffering does not equal atonement, at least not as far as the degree, the horribleness of sin compared to God and His goodness. This instance also seems similar to other First, examples that we've talked about before, like during the establishment of the priesthood with Nadab and Abihu, God was very severe with their judgment. And then in the beginning of the church with Ananias and Sapphira. So, since David was the first king to represent God and God was doing great things through him, it was particularly important to make a statement here. And then also to cover the atonement issue differently. Forgiveness is separate from consequences as well. Sometimes we are mercifully spared consequences, but other times we are not. At this point in the narrative, we hear about Gad. He's the one who comes to David with the word from God. We heard of Gad first in 1 Samuel 22.3 when David is hiding in Moab and Gad is the prophet or seer who gives him instructions to return to Judah. That is all happening at a time when David is not yet king and he is hiding from Saul. And then later here in First Chronicles, in chapter 29, verse 29, we learn that there is a book of Gad the seer, and in verse 25, that he was the king's seer, and it also mentions Nathan the prophet and Gad the seer with different descriptions. And when I looked up the translation, prophet and seer are used, they're different words to describe them. Now, in the notes for 1 Samuel 9.9, written by David Gusick, he says that a seer was always a prophet, but a prophet was not always a seer, and that being that having to do with the way they got their messages from God and that a seer particularly got visions to hear from God. It occurred to me at this point to compare all of this counting to that which is done in many churches. And I had to wonder if God approves of pastors or church organizers or whatever they choose to call themselves, counting what is God's, God's people, and somehow wearing it like a badge or using it for financial planning. That just doesn't seem that different from what the king was planning to do with feeling proud or possibly gathering taxes, uh, having an idea of his might represented by such numbers but we could also ask why was there a ransom necessary in Exodus 30 verse 12? Well, it looks toward Christ ransoming each of us, though we have to accept his gift. But you note in Exodus there that it talks about a very same small amount. It takes a very small action on the part of the people to accept that they can be ransomed by God to make atonement. It is very individual. It doesn't matter, male, female, anything. Everybody owes God. But again, this very small amount in Exodus was clearly only symbolic, which really makes you wonder why King David just didn't go ahead and do it. In verse 9, the three choices that Yahweh gave David were all going to be applied to the nation. And again, we're reminded that Although this particular sin was not something they did or were even capable of, it's not something that a non-king or common person would or could do, they were not still innocent. They had done some things that required some response. It's kind of an example that increased responsibility does give an increased opportunity for sin that affects others. And there was a particular quote in the commentary by Matthew Henry where he said, quote, the devil does more harm to us by tempting us to sin against god than by accusing us before god" End quote. and i'm glad i didn't have to make the awful choice about these between these three things the decreasing time length of the threes has always gotten my attention it goes from 3 years of famine to 3 months of being subdued by the enemies to 3 days of the pestilence and obviously You can compare that to the significance of Jesus being in the tomb for three days. A commentator, Clark, says that the first two choices are things the king would likely be insulated from. So even though what it says in the text is he chose the three days of pestilence because that was totally what God would be doing to them, it was also the only thing that he would be affected by potentially. His wealth and his power would likely have kept him from personally suffering from the side effects of the other things. In verse 11, the term Yahweh's angel is often translated in other versions, the angel of the Lord. And that has always been the way I've heard it in the past. For a very good biblical discussion of this term and angels in general in the Bible, I recommend Don Stewart's series. Angels, Gods, Invisible Messengers. He has it as a playlist on YouTube on his channel there, but it seems that his website has also been updated to have the videos to listen to without ads. He does also have a lot of his PDFs, and I looked up the PDF for this particular book, But apparently, they uploaded the wrong one. They uploaded the one for evil demons under this one. I've sent them a message, and hopefully they'll fix that soon because I wanted to look at it. But I have actually listened to most of his series on angels, and it is in episode 18 where he first starts talking about the phrase, the angel of the Lord. But you will understand that more clearly if you start at the beginning of his series. In verse 15, it says that when Yahweh got to Jerusalem, he relented. Just because God knows the beginning from the end doesn't mean he's not acting in the present. This doesn't mean he has changed his mind or his nature. It means he is at the point that he's changing what is happening or is in progress. He knows way ahead of time, before all things happen, what he's going to do in response to the choices that men still get to make. And at this point in time, it was time for something else. And that something else is that Yahweh is going to use this bad situation to teach David and us a few things. As we've said most directly, Yahweh is choosing the location of the future temple. Now, based on other examples that we mentioned, like with Job and Abraham, I'm going to say that if David had passed this test, as you say, that God would have still used it to point him to the future location of the temple. He didn't need David to do the wrong thing to use it to teach him where the temple was going to go, but he used what David was doing and what was happening now to accomplish his purposes. Now, according to 2 Chronicles 3.1, this is Mount Moriah, which has huge significance because it is related to what is talked about when Abraham offers up Isaac in Genesis 22 2. We do need to be aware that in Genesis 22, it only says that Abraham was told to go to the land of Moriah, so we do not know that he actually went exactly to this place, Mount Moriah. And there was one website that I was reading about this on where it says that possibly they used the name Mount Moriah there in Jerusalem because of what had happened with Abraham and Isaac, but that is a conjecture. There is an interesting overview of the term, the idea of Moriah in the Bible by F.E. Marsh that I will link to. The man Ornan in verse 15 is referred to as Aruna in 2 Samuel 24, and I went ahead and I looked at the Hebrew letters. I don't understand Hebrew, I'm just comparing the shapes, but in just looking at the letters on the Blue Letter Bible, comparing them side by side. These seem to be different names, but this is obviously the same fellow. You can also see that in the King James Version, in verse 23, it says that he is the old king, but he very clearly acknowledges Yahweh in this instance, even if he is descended from the Canaanite Jebusites. Several commentaries point out the metaphorical references to threshing throughout the Bible, suggesting that this is also in mind here, where the temple is going to be built on a threshing floor. I found an article on oneforisrael.org that was very interesting, and they had the quote, Threshing is essentially dividing, and referred to Psalm 1, where it says the wicked are not so, but are like the chaff, which the wind drives away, which is also part of threshing. And then you have Malachi 3.18-4.1 through 4, 1 that talks about the same concept. And as well, there is where John the Baptizer in both Matthew 3.12 and Luke 3.17 talks about Jesus coming with his winnowing fork, which has to do with threshing. Although God, Yahweh, is communicating through Gad, David and others see Yahweh's angel standing between earth and sky, verse 16. He sees a picture of the judgment is due with the sword in hand there, but he gets instructions for how to obtain mercy and proceed with worship. He is told to raise an altar to Yahweh in a very specific place, and even though it doesn't say so implicitly in the text, it very obviously has some ties to what went on with Abraham and Isaac. Curious details in verse 20 seem to say that Ornan didn't hide while his four sons did. In particular, in the New King James Version, it says that he continued threshing, while in our version, it just said that that's what he was doing there. Then David gives a pretty clear account to Ornan of what he wants to purchase the land for as king. He didn't have to give any explanation, but he's Pretty humble about it. Now, Ornan would donate it for the purpose, but the sacrifice needs to come through David. This most obviously shows that no one can humble themselves before God for somebody else. But also, to my mind, it hints at least to the one true efficacious sacrifice the person, Jesus Christ, who will be descended from David, who comes through David. So, saying he will buy it, David pays the price in full, which to me also speaks of the completeness of Christ's sacrifice. He paid the price in full. 2 Samuel 24.24 says that he bought the threshing floor itself for 50 shekels, but here in this chapter we are told he spends 600 shekels for the place or the site, indicating a larger area than just the threshing floor, but all the land around it. Verse 22 says, the place of this threshing floor. Once the purchase is complete, David builds an altar and sacrifices both burnt offerings and peace offerings. A burnt offering is described in Leviticus 1, and it is a male without blemish brought of a person's own free will, and the sacrifice is made by fire. In verse 4 of Leviticus 1 there, it says, quote, it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him, end quote. And the blood was sprinkled, and the whole sacrifice was burnt, per verse 9. The burnt offerings are some of the most regular offerings. For instance, in Exodus 29, verses 38 through 42, it talks about the two lambs, one offered in the morning and one in the evening as burnt offering. And in particular, God says where he will meet and speak with them. This is also referred to in Leviticus 6, verse 9 and forward, and Numbers 28, verse 6. And then also burnt offerings are specifically mentioned in the feasts in Leviticus 23. Then in 1 Samuel 13, 9, the combination of the burnt offering and the peace offering is made again. The scriptures, Psalm 40, verse 6, 51, verse 19, and Jeremiah 14, 12, make the point that God would rather have contrite, humble obedience than sacrifices, and that sacrifices without true repentance of the heart are an empty ritual. And then we have this amazing phenomena again, where we get fire from heaven. God sends the fire to burn up the sacrifice. So I did a search for the different places where fire came from heaven, and they kind of fall into different categories. You have fire falling on burnt offerings, you have fire falling on people, and you have fire showing up in places to manifest God's presence in different ways, a lot of times on mountains. So let me list some of them for you. One of the first is Exodus 3.2, where you have the apparently burning bush that appears to Moses. Then in Exodus 9.23, Moses is told to do something with his rod and you get thunder and hail and um, fire going from the sky, which could be lightning. You have Exodus 19.18, where you have the fire on Mount Sinai that scares the people. And you have Exodus 13.21, where it talks about the pillar of fire guiding the Israelites by night. Leviticus 9:24 when Moses is sacrificing to consecrate the priests god sends down fire right there to validate that sacrifice and interestingly i noted when i was reading that one that it is right after that that nadab and abihu aaron's sons make their gross error of offering strange fire once again showing that it's not for lack of miracles that people choose to do the wrong things they had just seen god's mighty power in many ways Another place that we have the fire of God appearing is Numbers 11.11, 11, where the people have been complaining against God, and so God sends fire on the outskirts of the camp, and that consumes people. And then in Judges 6.21, we have an instance of fire falling down on a sacrifice again, and this involves Gideon. First Kings 18.38 is the uh, whole thing that goes on with Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel where the fire comes down and consumes his sacrifice. And then in 2 Kings 3, verses 10 and 12, we have those unlucky captains and their regiments that Elijah calls down fire on because of the wrong things that the king of Israel is doing. Then the last notable time when fire came on a sacrifice seems to be 2 Chronicles 7, 1, when Solomon was dedicating the temple. So there are two... Uh, incidences of fire coming down for a sacrifice related to the temple or the site where the temple was going to be. Now, all this fire coming from heaven is notably missing in any of the narrative, the real events in the New Testament, other than being mentioned in prophecy. There is There are two mentions of fire coming down. One is interesting because it's Luke nine fifty four, where the disciples ask if they should call fire down, and Jesus says, no, you don't understand the times. But then there is 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, and 8, where Paul mentions the fire will come to devour those who are evil. We also have mentions of fire in Ezekiel 38, 22, Revelations 8, 7, and Revelation 29. And then there's the references in Revelation 1, 14, 18, and nineteen twelve where it refers to Jesus having eyes like a flame of fire. And let's not miss Acts Two, verses 3 and 4, where when you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on all of the disciples, not just the 12, but all of them who had been there praying, and the appearance as of tongues of fire. So that's just a quick little study on this kind of fire from God, and I'll conclude that with mentioning something that BibleStudyTools.com said. It says that fire communicates the presence of God, and often in conjunction with acceptance of an offering or way of doing things, Sometimes, a lot of times, as we saw through the examples, it has overtones of judgment, but it also comes closely linked to the idea of God's glory and showing that. So the second offering that King David offered was a peace offering, and this, I'll admit to you, has always been a little bit confusing to me, but I think I gained some understanding today. I have read in different translations, and when I saw this, somebody was describing it as like, oh, yes, in some translations, they translate that fellowship offerings. And so it's not an offering to bring peace. That's what is done through the burnt offering. It is an offering to enjoy peace, as David Gusick puts it. So in the peace offerings, which are described in Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 7, you can offer male or female. It has to be without blemish, which is taken care of by the atonement. And then it involves fellowship and feasting both before God, with God, and with other people. So there were parts that they were supposed to burn of these sacrifices, but they were also also supposed to eat it together, and the priests got some of it as well. They were also supposed to bring it with their own hands. It's interesting to me that in Ezekiel 46, where it's describing what seems to be the temple in the millennium, that the only offerings— mentioned are the burnt offering to remind them about the ransom that's been paid for their atonement and the peace offering to remind them about fellowship. So in some ways, it seems like the peace offering celebrates what the burnt offering has done or what it represents. The burnt offering in their time with the animals represented what was going to be done through Jesus Christ's perfect full sacrifice. So Then it also seems to suggest that God provides the atonement, but we have to choose the fellowship with Him and with each other. According to the narrative, Yahweh paused the judgment when He got to Jerusalem. They saw the angel in the sky, but it wasn't until later here in the narrative that He sheathed the sword when the sacrifices were complete. Mercy withheld the judgment, and then there was grace based on the atonement by coming to Yahweh the way that he prescribes. Verse 28 seems to say that because of God's very direct answer there of fire, that that's why David continued to offer all of his sacrifices there, which is quite in contrast to how this whole thing started. In the beginning, you have David acting in arrogance as king in pride and now at the end, you have him humbly going to a threshing floor of all places to offer sacrifices, where God chose for those sacrifices to be. Still, David seems to be afraid because of this unearthly sword that he's seen with the angel. Now, it doesn't say here in a way that I understand yet. Maybe I will later. I'm always learning things. But either David limited his interaction on this day with Yahweh and didn't go into re- Inquire anymore, or he didn't ever go in to inquire after that. I would seem to think that he just didn't want to interrupt at this particular time because of the angel there, because David did have a good relationship with Yahweh when he repented. And then again, I was reminded that we in this church era, we believers who believe in the blood of Jesus Christ saving us from our sins, we don't have to worry about any of this because the veil is torn. And we can just go right to the presence of God. Finally, this reminds us that Yahweh did establish the nation and kingdom of Israel a few thousand years ago. They are not a new nation, but one who has returned to their land in our times. But the returning was foretold in the Bible, and there is more about them as a nation that is yet to be fulfilled. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. That is the Bible News Press segment for today